I think all traditional media should have Substack, mm. have a Substack, and I think it's not instead of a magazine, it's not instead of a website, it is something different. And I don't think they're in competition, by the way. People go, oh, Substack, you know, it's in competition with traditional media. It's actually not. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. The final episode in this, our spring season. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Huston. And that extract you just heard is from my interview with Farah Thorpe. Over the past decade, she's gone from editor roles at some of the biggest lifestyle titles in the UK to the head of writer partnerships at Substack UK. She tells us about why more mainstream media should be investing in Substack, why she doesn't believe you need a huge profile to start out on the platform, and what problems with the wider internet ecosystem Substack is trying to solve. Now, you might notice that I don't sound particularly perfect so far this episode, but that's because I've come to visit my mum for Mother's Day. So if you are complaining about that, shame on you. Oh, Chris, you're amazing. <laughs> oh, God, how do we even get into our main story this week? Because it has been... Talking, talking of problems the wider internet ecosystem is trying to fix. Esther, you wrote a piece this week called Let's Be Blunt About the State of Reach's Sites. Now, what was the genesis of that piece? I think it was honestly just really unfortunate timing um there were two stories that were published literally on the same day on press gazette this week it must be about tuesday that were both about reach one was that um reach was warning of an online attention recession as it tells staff of significant job cuts they announced 400 um redundancies on tuesday if that sounds familiar it's because they've literally just finished like that they're two weeks out of another huge redundancy process they started at the start of the year um at the same time um Prescott said a second story of the day was an interview with the Manchester Evening News editor, who that's a reach title, of their bid to become the National of the North um, and basically sort of dismissing criticism of, of their coverage as, as sexist. This just, I mean, this this sparks so much so much discussion in our group chat that I've just, I've just got to write this up. So I think that the first story is that, um, yeah, obviously, senior leaders have pointed to things like inflation, a challenging consumer, consumer economy and decline in open market ad deals and have said, yeah, we're not looking at good 2023. That's fair. Nobody's going to disagree with that. Everybody's struggling a bit. Um, but they also then said, oh, there's an, there's an online attention recession, which, Peter, I think you sort of spluttered at in the chat, didn't you? I get the So open market yields are absolutely coming down. Yeah, no question. What are other people doing about that? They're moving to curated marketplaces, premium marketplaces, and that depends on quality. Not volume. It's not about attention at scale. It's about the quality of the content and the attention that you're getting on that content. Yeah, it's it's, it's the it's the two prongs of quality. It's the quality of the content and the quality of the experience reading that content. What I was just going to say is that I don't think the MEN or or reaches content in general is particularly bad. I don't think that's the point. It's just buried in. Well, I'm going to use that word again. These whack-a-mole websites. <laughs> It is unusable. Some people would disagree with your assessment of the quality of their content. And this is this is kind of, um, this ended up blowing up about a month ago. Um, so the the Manchester Evening News has got a, a sort of startup competitor called the Manchester Mill. You know, we've spoken to Josh on the podcast. Um, and they're very much going with a, do they, they, I think they use Substack, don't they? Mm-hmm. They were funded by Substack. Yeah, and they are, yeah, so they, they got a year's grant to um, essentially launch. And after two years, they're now profitable. They've got about 1,000, I think it was 1,400 members at last check. Um, and Joshi has been very, a very, very vocal critic of the of 
the type of stuff that they publish online. They'll quite frequently do sort of Twitter rants saying, you know, look, look at what, you know, accusing them basically of clickbait and sensationalism. And a month ago, the BBC interviewed him and actually ended up had to, having to apologise to Reach for not giving the right of reply on some of the stuff he was saying, which is partly what this interview with, uh, Press Gazette's interview with um, the Manchester Evening News editor, Sarah Lester, actually touched on, um, is she was saying, well, it's not clickbait because, you know, we, we're not sort of not giving you the answer to stuff. And if there's actually no no universal agreed definition of what clickbait is. Mm. So it, it all got a bit sort of complicated and, and the oh. two brands have been butting heads for quite a while. I don't know if I agree with that. I think the definition of clickbait is any story that doesn't deliver on this promise of the headline. It's not even just reach. It's a lot of regional and local news now which as a result of cost-cutting does stuff that is irrelevant to the local area. We're not talking about clickbait here, we're talking about irrelevance. I, like many others, no doubt, went and had a look on Manchester Evening News' website. They don't actually write clickbait, but my goodness me, the site is absolutely stuffed with those taboola ads that are mm. clickbait. And if you're if you're a reader on there and you don't necessarily know what taboola is, you don't know what these sponsored chum boxes are, you, you like it, it is absolutely round with clickbait. And MEN can stand there and say, well, that's not ours. And it's like, but it's on your site. But that uh, I've ranted. I've ranted about Tabula many, many times before. <laughs> yeah, that's that goes back to that after. <laughs> context piece, doesn't that goes back to what we said about context? Because if you're not, if you're presenting that alongside your articles and your well-written, well-researched local features, then you get tarred by association. There is a. This is all kind of in service of this deleterious web experience. In service of, I don't know, a scant amount of ad revenue. I think what particularly finished this off for me is that um, she she said that the, a lot of the criticism she tended to get was from blokes and that there was an air of sexism about it. Um, and when I went on the site, there were... Let me just read you some of these headlines and you can tell me if they're sexist. These, this one's actually from Manchester Evening News. Amanda Holden fans ask, who zoomed in the, into the mirror she poses in tiny dress? There's one from a, a sponsored one from a, uh, one of the chum boxes that's Erling Haaland's girlfriend is so raunchy, proof in photos. <laughs> 20 plus hilarious car photos of women caught on camera. And like it just it just kept going on and on and on. It's like if if you if you're accusing other people of sexism in their criticism of you, you like are you are you reading your website? Are you experiencing okay, what's coming okay, up okay. on your website? Okay, but if I can play devil's avocado, what she was actually saying was the criticism of the content, mm. which was around well, celebrities, entertainment, and I guess shopping. Which she was saying, well, you're assuming that that no one's interested in that stuff, and yet they are interested in that stuff. Yeah. And there's a kind of, oh, I'm interested in football because it's a blokey great thing to do. <laughs> and then no one should be able to talk about Coronation Street or whatever. Yeah. So and, she and had she, a point on that. She, that she, she did. 100%. 100%. I don't think any of us are disagreeing with that. And there is a sort of snobbery around this kind of stuff. There is absolutely a place yeah. for lifestyle, culture, te TV, fashion coverage. Josh, you did point this out on Twitter. You said it's, it's, it's not that you're covering Molly May. It's the way you're, you know, you're doing a sort of like 20 minute write up for an Instagram post, not doing like a deep dive into absolutely. some actual interesting stuff about her. And I thought, so one of, one of Sarah Lester's other points that she made is that she she said well you know the new york times started life as a as a local brand you know i have high ambitions for the manchester evening news but there's such yeah. a huge Christmas gulf of a difference there. and and people will say it's snobbery yeah, yeah it probably is a little bit of snobbery but it's if you're paying somebody to spend four hours writing an in-depth dive into into an entertainment piece 
or you're paying somebody to write five half hour pieces, you're going to get a huge, huge difference in the quality there. But okay, so here's the point with the New York Times. And you're right, you can get really smart ass and say, oh, Manchester even News, New York Times. I don't think so. That's not the point, right? You have perfected that voice, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I'm going to Google how old the New York Times is, right? Because I don't know. So it was set up in 1851. That is irrelevant. I don't know when the Manchester Evening News was set up, but it was probably a long time ago. Ooh, you know, it's not even that different. Manchester Evening News, founded in 1868. The point is that a decade ago, 2011, which is more than a decade That's ago. That's 12 years. <laughs> the New York Times put all its shit behind a paywall. And the only way you can do that is if your stuff is really good. Mm. And, you know, God love them, but the Manchester Evening News could not put 90% of its stuff behind a paywall. Reach are planning, um, they're planning to do a sort of membership type scheme where you pay for like an ad-free experience. But it- <laughs> So that's the strategy all along. You make it unbearable <laughs> for four, five, six years. People get so scunnered. Good Scottish word. That's a very good Scottish word. And then... They'll give you money to just stop the pain. What, like, like in publishing, when has that worked? Well, you have to invest in the good content first before you can switch to a reader revenue model. The Telegraph, right? But they're, they're one example of a brand that did that. And I, I what was it about eight or nine years ago they launched their paywall, and they they said, right, you know, we're gonna we, we need to clean up the UX. Anyway, I, I, this uh, this has turned into a bit of a dumping on reach session, and um, I, I would have said like, it's not just reach. <laughs> it's no, it it's not just reach. Hasn't just reach. No, re- the regional. It's actually, we keep bagging on regional publishers. That's not true. Either. No, 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 no. We're so not. The national websites are awful. Oh, yeah, totally. Absolutely. And that's the thing. We're not, we need to separate this out. We're, we, and you, I know this has been flagged further down the notes. We are not in any way bagging on the journalists who are producing this kind of stuff because it is not their decision. They have been commissioned to write this. It is effectively management's decision to focus on these very short term, get pump these stories out type strategy but it's that, that page view target strategy again mm, and we've spoken about this before absolutely but i also do feel uh, to some extent for some of these execs in a very little way because they're stuck between a rock and a hard place here they have maneuvered themselves into this position where like they cannot to your point start charging direct reader revenue here versus you know the, the need to generate as much ad revenue as possible in an ecosystem that doesn't support really well-written, long features. Yeah, the response to, to what we've written has just been like, like so many of the journalists at that level that are actually there writing that stuff, putting that stuff out and can just see their work put up on sites that is unreadable. They are so frustrated. And yeah, for, for many of them, it is genuinely good work they do. Um, I think we pointed some of it out in the... Um, in the piece that you know the, the coverage they did of um, of that child that died due yeah. to the mold in the social housing that that has caused national change in our laws um that you know they they very wide uh, manchester Evening news is very widely praised for its coverage of the manchester arena bombing it's not to say that they don't do good work it's just that when you a can't read it and b it's surrounded by chumbox stuff like all this stuff that destroys trust you have no like it's just not sustainable you know what gets me a little bit i wonder how journalists at reach titles feel about being almost used as a shield for criticism by some of the execs where they go oh in fact oh you're criticizing our output well i hope that you are 
taking on the responsibility for criticizing our journalists. How do you think our young journalists would feel about this? I wonder how they feel about being used as a shield for criticism like that. I was going to say, you don't study for how many years to then be sat in a, at a desk saying, oh, there's this really cool Instagram post about how soft these Mark Spencer jumpers are. <laughs> I literally had that conversation with Laura Dunlop this week. Take ripping off someone's social media TikTok story about how soft a Martin Spencer's jumper is is not journalism. It just mm. isn't. And we we I mean we've had messages on Twitter criticizing the attacks on the MEN from competitors in national media because that's got to feel bad. It's like mm. you know it's just this dog pile. But you know, one, so one of these messages, what effect do you think it has on very talented, hardworking young journalists to be repeatedly told their popular work is low quality? Get it, 100% get that. That must be just the worst. But it's not the critics' fault, right? No, absolutely not. It's reach management's fault. There's a real mismatch between people like Sarah Lester, who's been in a newsroom for decades, understands news, understands good stories, you know, she's the boss of the person that did that investigative piece. And then you got the bean counters. <laughs> Ding. You got the bean counters on the other side with the spreadsheets and all. We need to save £30 million. Pounds. Let's cut some people. This has been, I suppose, a potted history of the past week from kind of the announcements, poorly timed announcements and interviews and our response to that. Anecdotally, I think we've all seen an uptick in contact and follows from reach journalists so it's obviously hitting a nerve somewhere but the reality is that you know this is this is not a short-term fix that reach execs cannot suddenly turn around and go ah you know what this is existential almost so easy for us to just sit here oh yeah and 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 look at this from the outside and go this is wrong this is wrong blah 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 and and yeah you know that's the the easy part of our job i suppose but you know, for the people involved in this, it's just got horrendous. And now on to this news in brief. And we simply do not have time to get into this fully. So I'm just going to use this as a footnote to our previous discussions around trust in the media. So The Guardian has this week been slowly peeling away at what seems to be quite an incestuous relationship between the current Conservative government and senior decision makers at the BBC. So it makes for some depressing reading, which is why I'm just going to leave the link in the show notes rather than go into it all with you here. Oh, okay. So, Buzz, you know, this is this like deja vu all over again. <laughs> BuzzFeed wants its reporters to write more stories, but it cut its newsroom by about 40% over the last year. But now Editor-in-Chief Carolina Baklaviak has told newsroom staff that they need to increase the story count to help profitability this year. <laughs> As we've proved for the first 15 minutes or whatever of this <laughs> podcast, that isn't a BuzzFeed problem, it's an industry problem. Uh, and I get you got to make the most out of what you've got, but seeing people as a cost, cutting numbers, saying that success then depends on those people, it just makes no sense to me. It's just bonkers. On a completely different topic, uh, one and a half years after renaming itself after its Metaverse initiative, Meta has noticeably de-emphasized that vision for the future. This, my goodness me, this, this rollercoaster ride is going faster and faster. Um, so any guesses what they're going after now? Uh, wow. AI, On December 31st, people stopped emailing me about the Metaverse and started emailing me about AI. So I'm guessing it's AI. It is. They're going after mm. generative AI. So they've announced this week they're laying off a further 10,000 
people from um, from the business. That's in addition to the huge layoffs they had. Gosh, what January? That's mad. That um, figure was huge. They said that their single largest investment is now in advancing AI and building it into all their products. So no, can I um, throw out a slightly wild prediction? This year? I, I don't. I don't think Zuck's going to last the year. Ooh, well, that is quite. That is quite the claim. I that think. I think it's been explosive. Pivot after pivot, like he's he's getting to say he's, he's pivoting faster than news publishers, mm. um, and I, I I just think that any like like they're a fairly bright bunch at the top of that company, and they're just going to be looking at this, being like, why are we just chasing the next the well, next big thing? Just be all the robots reading all the robot stuff, and this is this is exactly what we said the other week. It's just robots creating <laughs> content for other robots that is then measured by robots, and a, like all the revenue is apportioned out to robots, and we can just go and live in the forest again. It'd be brilliant that's already happening yeah. <laughs> i spoke to people this week who told me about using ai to to manage their social media i've got a prediction then bullshit is going to keep running and running and running and running and we'll be talking about it on our 500th episode oh i'm not taking a bet against that no we'll we'll, we'll be replaced by um generative ai at that point oh sweet oh, god This week, I spoke to Farah Store, who is Head of Writer Partnerships for Substack UK. When she wasn't trying to convince me to start my own newsletter about carbs, we spoke about the opportunities for mainstream magazines on Substack and where the platform is looking to invest in the near future. But to begin with, I asked her why she made the move from the editor of L to Substack. First of all, the, the easiest answer is I'd done sort of 22 years in traditional media. Um, and whilst I loved it, I'd sort of got to to the top. I sort of mm. got to the place where I always intended to be. However, the other side of that story is, you know, I was 42. I was editing Elle. Um, and the media landscape looked very different to when I first came in. So that's, you know, two decades. Um, when I first came into the media, all looked cheery. I thought I'd probably be in traditional media for the rest of my days. But, of course... By the time I was editing Elle, and, and, you know, I took on the editorship pre-COVID, so most mm. of the editorship was done from my spare bedroom. Um, I remember coming out into the real world and sort of newsstands had shrunk. So I went into Sainsbury's and, you know, I asked, where is the, the magazine newsstand? And it had all been taken over by Homeware. Um, you know, the digital revolution, as brilliant as it was, of course, that put a lot of pressure on magazines. Um, you know, there was always this worry of are people going to pay £5 for a magazine when they can have endless content for free? Um, and, and the other thing is that I suppose the final point was I really worried, you know, when I looked at uh, the magazines that I had edited, apart from Elle, Women's Health was the first one, Cosmo was the second one. Those were brands which actually traditionally were very reliant on consumer revenue, which is readers loving the content, buying the magazine, less so on advertising. But of course, with sort of digital, we moved into a place where advertising became absolutely key and eyeballs mm. became key. And, and my, my personal feeling was it wasn't the best environment for writers, for writers to produce their best work when those were the metrics you were working for. So, you know, 18 months ago, I, I was thinking, you know, probably traditional media is no longer for me, but... I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And, and actually, as it happens, I remember um, weighing up how much I was spending on magazine subscriptions and how much 
I was spending on, um, I didn't know it was Substack. I was vaguely aware of Substack, but how much I was paying on writers who were writing on this other platform. And it ended up being more. Mm. And, you know, I just thought, hang on a minute, there's something really interesting happening here. And I'd like to be a part of it. And it was Substack, of course. I mean, you've brought up so much there that we could, I mean, devote entire episodes of the podcast to. The first is that, I suppose, change an incentive for writers from that advertising-led model to a direct payments from your reader's model. And I wondered, what are some of the trends over the past couple of years that you think we've seen that have really enabled Substack to grow to the position it is now? Well, I think, I think actually what happened to traditional media and the, the the revenue model that it relied on, which was advertising, I don't think readers ever stop loving writers. That never changed. That's such but, an optimistic way of looking at things. <laughs> they never grew tired of writers. People love writers. And, 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 you know, everybody has their special cohort of writers who they love. And by the way, when I was editing a magazine, I was always very aware, you know, writers are not like dairy cows. You can't trade one for the other and it won't make any difference. Writers are really special and the audience comes for the writer. But I think what happened with digital, of course, is, you know, we started to see this proliferation of listicles and everybody sort of swarming over the same stories of the Kardashians and, you know, Mm. God knows what else. And so actually, I think audiences just suddenly stopped, took a breath and went, hang on a minute, what happened to that stuff five years ago that I used to love where I could, you know, I mean, my husband used to write for Loaded when they did those long form gonzo, you know, journalistic pieces. What happened to them? And it's not that the appetite went for them. It's just that they were replaced by something um, which was necessitated by, of course, you know, the, the ad model. So I think what Substack has understood implicitly is A, the trust between writer and reader, which is very special, and the bond between them. And also, and again, I saw this at Cosmo, I saw it on Women's Health, people will pay to support writers they love and they will pay for content. I hate the word content, but they they will pay for journalism that they love. And that's really very simply what Substack has done in an ad-free environment. Mm. You know, that very intimate connection between, a bit like magazines, writer and reader together on on one journey um so so that is what what substack has seized upon and that i think is i don't think it's a trend i think we just forgot about that see that's that's fascinating and almost that's a condensation of the entire argument that people have been having for years over the kind of relationship between ads and how articles are commissioned and written but thank you first and foremost for giving me that dairy cow analogy which i'm definitely going to take to my editor next time that you know I'm, i'm filing something late but you obviously have used Substack yourself as a writer. So before we get into some of the strategy of Substack itself, what would you say has been your experience of using it to generate those direct relationships with readers? It's been amazing because, remember, I spent most of my, well, all my journalistic career hiding behind a brand. Mm. And Oh, that's in- a really interesting phrase. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's the truth. And, and, and actually, it's very scary when when you are unmasked, when you don't get, walk into a room or write a piece and it doesn't say at the bottom, editor of Elle or, mm. you know, former editor of Elle or former editor of Cosmo. Um, so, so that that was very scary. And of course, when I started my own Substack, um, I had no idea if people would, would have any interest whatsoever. But very quickly, it has Grown. I mean, I have, just to give you an example, I've now, and, and by the way, I'm writing about all the stuff that I couldn't really write about in the magazines mm. 
I was head of, you know, sort of secret lives of women, sort of stuff which actually I would say now in the culture we live in, people go, oh, it's a bit frightening. You can't write about that. Um, so, and, and by the way, that's a whole other conversation, but I oh, think yeah. the sanitised world in which we lived in is making journalism so bloody boring. Um, <laughs> that's fair. So that's what I had always wanted to write about. Um, and yeah, I've been writing it for a year now. It's called Things Worth Knowing. I've got, I think I've got almost 16,000 subscribers now. Nice. That's, so that's purple badge or the one above that? Do you know what? I don't know what colour badge I am. I, I <laughs> badge I am I try not to, to to take it you know I should but I try not to pay any attention it's a bit like awards I, I you can't you can't get sucked into it mm. um and I've got almost 700 paying subscribers so to put that into context Chris that is almost as much money as I was earning when I got my first editorship that and I write once a week that if you'd have told me that a year ago or actually if you'd have told any writer mm. I, it's head spinning like it's head spinning um for me no, it really is. It's almost like letter writing, this two-way mm. process that goes on between writer and, 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 and reader. To what extent is that a, almost a new skill set that some writers are going to have to develop? Yeah, I mean, look, it's not going to be for all writers, is it? I mean, some writers, they're like, I just want to write and I don't want to <laughs> But you know what? Even those sort of writers, of which I know many on Substack, they've been sort of amazed at actually they do want to speak to their community. Um, and, and you know what? They're only community managers in so much as... You sort of, you know, on chats, for example, you set the questions. You, it's like having a dinner party. You go, guys, what do we think about this? You set it. But actually, your readers don't necessarily want to talk to you. They want to talk about everybody. They want to talk to everybody else in the community, which A, as a writer myself, I would say is is A, liberating, but B, it's really an amazing thing to see. Um and also, if you are a sort of classic writer where you are, you know, community management, it's not your thing. It doesn't really matter. All you're mm. doing is setting the agenda and letting everybody have a discussion. From what you've seen then, are there universal attributes that make a good writer on Substack? You don't necessarily have to have a big profile. And I think mm. that is important. Um, I think I was mentioning to you before the show, there is a, a lady called Nicola Lamb. She was a pastry chef. She didn't have a big social media presence at all. She started a Substack in lockdown. She was religious. She published, I think, twice a week. She built a community um, to the extent where with her community now, she does, you know, she does live events with them. She was telling me recently, um, she emailed her community and said, guys, I'm going to an orchard in Kent at the weekend. If you want to come, I'm going to be at London Bridge Station at 12 o'clock. <laughs> Come and meet me. And about 50 people turned up who all knew one another from all the conversations they'd had. Um, she didn't have a big community to start with. Um, it's now her full-time job. You know, she makes an excellent salary. So I think it's that. It's be strict, be disciplined. Don't think of it like traditional media and go, okay, well, I have to have this franchise and I have to do it. You can relax. You know, the best substats are quite rustic. You want to feel like the writer has woken up one day and gone, do you know what? I'm going to write a poem today that is interesting you know that mm. is getting inside the, the the head of the writer so i think somebody who's quite relaxed about that sort of thing and experimental um substack is, is going to serve you pretty well but do you find from looking at the suite of writers on substack that there are particular verticals and sectors that work best for you know getting paying subscribers is it politics is it hobby based you know where are you seeing success or is it sort of i suppose dependent on the writer more than the topic it's 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 all of that actually. So sometimes it will de be dependent on the writer, for example. So you know, someone like Hanif Qureshi, 
of course you're going to pay for him writing from you know, and his son writing from his, his hospital bedside but finance uh, probably you know that makes a lot of sense does incredibly well um, can be very profitable um, food and drink um, excellent sort of niche um, hobbyist subjects yeah that, that's absolutely right we definitely see that crafting poetry um, politics yes but it, it's sort of tricky to say because of course Substat started with a lot of big figures in the political arena mm. so that probably sways it a bit but yeah there are absolutely people paying for political writers um, so it, comics does incredibly well um, you know, I've seen I think some creators, yeah, have, yeah, have gone all in from the kind of the big comics publishing houses all in on Substack, which is not something that, to your point about, you know, it launching with a bunch of big political writers would have occurred to many people at the time, I think. Absolutely right. And, and the other thing I would say, people who tend to do well is those writers who are really honest about it. So I, I always laugh and go, I wonder if it's a British thing, but <laughs> a lot, and I think it's a writer slash British thing. Writers feel quite uncomfortable talking about money. Um, and a lot of writers, you know, when I talk to them, they go, oh, who's going to pay? First, who's going to pay for me? And and secondly, I feel a bit icky about asking for money. Farah, this but, is exactly what I said to you before we started recording the podcast. It's so true. Yeah, I, I think it's exacerbated by being British and being polite <laughs> and not wanting to talk about money. But um, and, and I say to them, I say, look, you only have to ask. Mm. Um, but of course, you have to explain your situation. And the people that I have seen do the best are those when they start Substack, they are really honest. So um, there is a columnist who is, uh, is just come over or is about to come over. And they've been really honest. They've said, look, you know, I'm making a massive leap of faith here. I'm going out alone without the security of a media, a media company and the salary. Um, I won't lie. It takes time to write and your support is going to mean the world to me. And, and I think that is very important. The more honest you can be. And also, I think people are so used to writing being, you know, content being free and being everywhere. But the reality is there is a human being behind there who is writing in late into the night and time Time equals, you know, payment. If someone cleans your windows, you pay them. If somebody writes an article and you enjoy it, then you should pay them. So I would say actually that is almost more fundamental than what you're writing about is being really open and honest and going, this is what I'm going to give you, you know, if you become a paid subscriber. But also here's what you're supporting. See, that's fascinating. And that leads very neatly onto what I was going to ask before when you're talking about kind of that rustic appeal or the kind of the authentic appeal of a Substack writer, which does feel like it fits right in that Venn diagram of so many trends we've seen from the wider media industry, whether that be, you know, people going into Discord to launch communities that they can talk to, you know, in that very authentic way, or whether that be kind of that, that trend away from, I suppose, these huge monolithic media companies towards individuals around whom people can gravitate. So to what extent do you think that this is, I suppose, a wider trend that we need to see more, I suppose, traditional media organisations adopt some of the lessons from, even if they can't do, you know, the funding methods, actually bring personalities to the fore? I think all traditional media should have Substack, mm. have a Substack, and I think it's not instead of a magazine. It's not instead of a website. It is something different. And I don't think they're in competition, by the way. People go, oh, Substack, you know, it's in competition with traditional media. It's actually not. You know, Substack 
and and me obviously personally, nobody wants to see traditional media fall. No way. Um, but I I could definitely if I still edited you know L or if I still edited Cosmo, I could see a place where you have individuals on that brand um, as part of their day job, by the way. Um, who is who is perhaps writing for Substack? So let's make this up. It might be the beauty editor going. I'm you know I'm doing a video from inside the beauty cupboard today. Um, join me for you know an in conversation with this you know this person that's just launched a beauty line. Um, it's for paid subscribers only. You can ask your questions. Come on over. I can absolutely see a world um, where that would exist. I mean, the new statesman uh, just joined Substack maybe two weeks ago. Um, and, and, and you know, it, it's brilliant. It's absolutely mm. brilliant. Um, the Byline Times is also on Substack. So I can see a world where, yeah, it's just a slightly different offering and it may well be a different community that you're bringing in. You're saying that it's it's additive in terms of audience and potential revenue as well. So New Statesman, obviously, they are um, both ad-supported and subscription-supported for some of their products. But you're saying this is now almost in the same way that they put their podcast behind a monetization wall. This is almost putting some new product behind kind of that substack. I mean, obviously, I don't know what their plan is, but yeah. but yeah, that's absolutely. If you are a traditional media brand, I can see a I can see a world where because you're basically going, we're putting it back to the consumer again. If the consumer wants to pay, don't you know, sort of, this is the place that they can do that, and and I think a lot of brands and look, you know, I was in the middle of all of this. It's really easy to 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 be scared and think are consumers going to pay? Like you get very very scared, but of course. If you're a Cosmopolitan magazine, and, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about you'd be amazed who will pay if people, A, trust you, and B, if there's a lot of love. So yeah. someone like Cosmopolitan, someone, a brand like Cosmopolitan, I can imagine them on, on Substack going, you know, we have been the pioneering female brand for women for the last 50 years. We're now doing something new. Come with us. I can imagine that there will be a real, A, outpour of support because of that emotional connection. Um, and B, it's just a completely new space, isn't it? It's an ad-free space for a start, which, you know, social networks, let's be honest, they are not ad-free spaces. They're quite Um, the opposite. They're quite the opposite. You have to dodge the ads every single time you go on them. Twitter at the moment is just an absolute nightmare for that. It's ridiculous. Not it's not a nice experience for for you know for a consumer to be. So I think I always say, or or actually Substack says, you know, you've got social networks, but but Substack is a subscriber network. Mm. That's what it is. It's about trust and it's about direct payments as a consequence of that trust. And I think traditional media, um, it still has a lot of trust in there. It, it really does. But but I think you know there needs to be. I think there needs to be payment for the work of writers. Oh, 100%. And, you know, in fact, so much of what traditional media brands are doing now is predicated on that trust. So absolutely. So in terms of, I suppose, the perennial internet issues of things like discovery and actually making sure that you are able to be found online, what are some of the, I suppose, the problems that Substack is still finding solutions for, for its writers? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. So one of the biggest things about Substack is its growth network. So what I mean by that, which sounds sort of very jargony, is basically if you are a writer on Substack, the biggest the biggest sort of pain point for you is going to be how do I grow? 
Mm. You know, that, that's every writer's thing. Um, and most writers, by the way, they're not marketeers. They find that stuff uncomfortable. And, and Substack completely understands that. So the biggest thing, and actually I would say it's one of the things that the platform spends the most time thinking about is, okay, how can we help writers get discovered? How can we help writers grow? And there is a number of ways, actually. So the, the, the classic way, of course, would be um, there is a, a Substack explore page. Um, when you start a Substack, you put in what your primary category is. So let's say, Chris, you start a Substack and your primary category is health and wellness, let's just say. No, um, no. <laughs> let's just say uh, health and wellness. So when somebody comes along, they come onto the Explore page, they can go into health and wellness, and they can basically sort of um, sift through all the writers on there. But I think the most effective way that you get discovered is we have a thing called recommendations. Um, and, and I was saying to you earlier, I've got 15,000 subscribers on my Substack, almost 16,000 now. Um, almost half of those have come through recommendations. And what recommendations is, is another writer or creator on the platform recommending me to their subscribers. Because that's when the true growth happens, that the massive growth happens when a writer goes, guys, this is a writer I really enjoy and I think you're going to like them too. It's a bit like when we used to hand articles around and go, oh my God, you should read this feature. Um, that is when you see these huge spikes and you see the discovery happen. Um, it's pretty transformational. I mean, it's like a fountain. It's somebody's, as soon as somebody starts recommending you, the growth just ignites. Mm. Um, there's also a thing called cross-posting. So uh, let's say on your health and wellness substack, Chris, uh, you've written something brilliant about protein. I could cross post that and I could, you know, so therefore my subscribers would then be aware of this brilliant piece you've written about protein. And therefore, one would hope you would get a bunch of subscribers too. So there are all these sorts of um, little, very subtle um, levers and threads being pulled behind the scenes, which equate with um, huge growth. And actually, I think I'm correct in saying 40% of all subscriptions um, on Substack come from the Substack network. That's fascinating. That is such, uh, I suppose, validation of everything you were saying there about that that community, net, that community sort right. of ideal of sharing. Yeah. It's like all these people and readers and writers whispering to one another going, this, you should be reading this. Oh my God, look what's trending here. You should read that. Um, just one thing to, to pick up on it. I would be writing about carbs. I would not be writing about protein. <laughs> I so. would read that. I would definitely read that. <laughs> Well, um, I suppose beyond that, obviously, when we're talking about writers and you were talking there about hesitancy for, to ask and also to kind of explain the circumstances to say, I need to be paid for this. Yeah. What are some of the other monetization options that Substack is looking at? You mentioned, you know, that lady who got 50 people to turn up to a train station. So yeah. are there live event opportunities? Are there, you know, other, I suppose, merchandise opportunities that you're kind of folding into or rather Substack is folding into its plans for the future? I mean, the thing is, we're looking at everything. And actually, most of what we do is listening to what writers want. So as writers start, because essentially a Substack, it's your business. Mm. We are the platform, but it's your business. So um, there are people, by the way, who sell merchandise um, on Substack, but they don't, they'll do it through Shopify. They won't, they won't be doing it quite through, through Substack at the moment. But as writers sort of start to create an empire, and, and that's really what we're in the business of wanting is writers to go, yeah, I can absolutely write, but hang on a minute, I could put on events or I can sell mm. merchandise or I can, you know, I don't know what else they, they think of doing. I could do meetings. Um, 
that's what we will start to look at. You know, as soon as we get a sort of huge swathe of writers going, have we thought about this? That's the thing that we'll start looking at. But there are absolutely, there's so many people who, um, I mean, first of all, the thing to say is, I've seen so many interesting things that people are selling. So, so for example, you have free subscribers, then yeah. you have a classic paid subscriber who will pay you annually or monthly. But then on Substack, you have another tier of membership, which is called a founding membership. And that is for somebody who is either a sort of super fan um, who really wants to support you and pay more than the annual subscription. Or, so let's, let's my Substack, for example, I give founding members for my sins I give them all a, a one-hour um, Zoom call with me um, to talk about. It's generally about writing is what we talk about. Mm. So, and I see a lot of people doing that sort of thing and wrapping it into their founding membership. So, yeah, I think there will absolutely um, come a point where writers basically and creators are running an entire empire from Substack. That's what I'd like to see. I'm sure it's what the founders would like to see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's such a aspirational word to use, that kind of that empire approach, empire building, but based on expertise, personality, all these things that should be the foundation of a creator economy. Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I remember years ago when influencers, and I, I like influencers, you know, yeah. I, I, um, a big part of my day job. But I remember thinking, God, isn't it interesting? It's like, Nobody's in. This was about ten years ago. Nobody's interested in writers, and yet they've got all this experience and expertise. But writers were never influencers, and now, of course, influencers are you know are still hugely successful. But writers are now in their world, becoming their own influencers and bringing all their expertise and all the stuff actually that I think a lot of writers in the last ten years um, have not put a lot of prestige against. I think mm. a lot of writers that often look inside their soul and go, well, hang on a minute, you know, what have I got to offer? You know, who's, but, but actually, I think personally, the really gratifying thing that I see is it's sort of come full circle again, because, you know, back in the sort of 60s and 70s, when writers were celebrities, basically, and then it sort of lost its way in the last sort of decade, of course, when all these poor writers have been, you know, throwing out listicles and God knows yeah. what else. And now what we're seeing on Substack is writers becoming sort of celebrities for their own tribe again, which for me as an editor is the most wonderful thing in the world to see. I need to get thinking about what my USP is going to be on Substack. Absolutely, you do. <laughs> You're right, and it's a really good point. You know, I think, although I do not know because I was not in Rolling Stone at this time, but I'm pretty sure Hunter S. Thompson pretty much just made it what he wanted to do and went and did it. And yeah. of course, if somebody had come into my office and said, Farah, I want to write this story about going to, you know, this, I don't know, whatever, going to Las Vegas to take lots of drugs, well, it would have been a no. <laughs> it would have been a firm no. Um, but of course, on Substack, you are running your own business. You can wake up one morning and go, I want to write about carbs. And you yeah. will trust that your audience will want to read it. And by the way, Chris, if they don't want to read it, you'll see pretty quickly because people will either unsubscribe or yeah. they'll tell you. And so you you start to get into a sort of rhythm and you start to feel what works, what doesn't work. Maybe you don't care. Um, that is all very empowering for a writer. Yeah, certainly. Well, in a couple of months, look out for my Substack where I go to Las Vegas and just take a load of carbs. Like that, that's going to be, that's the dream. Uh, Farah, thank you so much for coming on Media Voices and having the chat. What we'd like to do is at the end of every episode, we ask our guests, what's one piece of media? It could be TV, could be, a, you know, a newsletter, could be a book you've read. What's one piece of media you'd like to recommend to 
our audience that's either engendered an emotional response in you or you just think was a particularly well-crafted piece of media? It's got to be a substack. I tell you what I, I tell you. I tell you um, what it would be. <laughs> Um, there is one of my favorite writers of all time, uh, was a big celebrity writer, um, for Vanity Fair in the nineties when I was starting out, he's called Kevin Sessoms. He wrote all the outrageous celebrity interviews where he got like naked in a bath with, or he got, he got Courtney Love naked in a bath while he interviewed her. He, (laughs) he, he was next. I don't think you could get away with it nowadays, but anyway, he did. It was brilliant. I still remember it to this day. And he writes a substack called Sess Sums It Up. And um, he writes some pretty amazing things on that. A lot of very, very deeply personal things, but also um, a lot of what he used to do in the Vanity Fair days. So I would, um, I'd urge everyone to read that one. So that's it for Media Voices for now. Until our next season starts after our podcast awards um, at the end of April. Might take us a little bit longer, depending on how long we have to wait to source uh, synthetic humans. But we'll be back. Um, but if you if you miss us and you know you really want to stay in touch, our daily newsletter will be continuing, um, and our analysis and opinion work. So um, if we get riled up by anything else in particular, I'm sure we'll write that on the website. Um, you can sign up to the newsletter and read all of our stuff at voices.media. Uh, we'd love to have you on board. But until next season, when we'll be back with more fantastic guests and hopefully some, <laughs> I suppose, cheerier news about everything that's going on in the media. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>